Well, I'm sure you're aware by now that our faith focus is united in witness. And there's really two key words there. There's witness. Witness is who we are, and it's what we do. We are called by God to give personal testimony of the saving power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's our joy, and it's our job. It's our delight, and it's our duty. And we're to do that in a united way. That's how we witness. Well, it's important that each one of us witnesses individually to the saving grace of Christ. Our corporate worship is even more important. It's compelling evidence of the reality of our salvation in Christ. <clears throat> Jason referenced this this morning in John 13:35. Jesus said, By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So we are united in our witness. And tonight we're going to look <clears throat> at one essential part of that united aspect of our witness. Forgiveness. The willingness and the ability to continually forgive one another. Because when forgiveness to one another is lacking, our witness will be compromised. So I'd invite you right now to turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3. And we're going to look specifically at two verses, <clears throat> verses 12 and 13. But before we read those verses, let me just give a little brief context in this chapter. Colossians 3 is a wonderful chapter <clears throat> full of all kinds of instructions and commands, but it's really built upon the foundation of the first four verses. In those first four verses, Paul tells us the gospel motivation and the gospel power to be united in our witness, including the power to forgive. He says, you have died and been raised with Christ. You're a new creation. He says, your life is hidden with Christ in God. You have a new security. Christ is your life. He defines it. You have a new identity and purpose. And you will appear with him in glory. You have a new hope and a new destiny. That's the foundation. That's the power for all that we do as Christians. And then in verses 5 through 11, he tells us sins that we must put to death if we're going to stay united. He lists 10 sins. They're not an exhaustive list, just a representative list. Five sexual sins and five anger-related sins that we must put to death if we're going to stay united. And then in verse 12, he's going to tell us how we live that out. We put to death or put off certain things, and we put on other things. So in verse 12, he's going to tell us how to live out our united witness. So let's read that verse right now. Paul says, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Paul is, Paul is telling us, first of all, remember your identity. You are chosen of God. You are holy, set apart for Him, and you are beloved. And then he says, like new clothes, put on Christ. Put on Christ-like a character, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. 
And then in verse 13, he gives us two participles, two ing words, which further flesh out how we live together, united in love. So he says, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. So first of all, he says, if we're going to live united, <clears throat> we must bear with one another. Now, I, I wonder what your response is when you hear that. Does that sound kind of ordinary? Even maybe a little sub-Christian? It's like we can almost hear Jesus in the background saying, even the Gentiles put up with each other. But I love how realistic the Bible is. The Bible recognized that while our lives are hidden with Christ in God, we're still living that out on this fallen planet. So in other words, simultaneously, our, our lives are both exalted to the heavens and still sometimes stuck in the mud of this world. And there are going to be plenty of times, brothers and sisters, when we're just going to have to put up with each other. Why? Because even the most <clears throat> mature Christian you know can be annoying, unreasonable, clueless, and sometimes even downright hard to get along, get along with. How many of you already knew that? Anybody? <clears throat> How many of you live with somebody like that? How many of you are someone like that? It's just reality. We're not home yet. So he says, bearing with, putting up with one another. But then he says, if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. And that raises it. This is more serious than just putting up with someone's annoying weaknesses or idiosyncrasies. The word complaint implies that something wrong has been done. There's been sin committed. And that calls for a more serious, even sacrificial response. It calls for the response of forgiveness. And I'm kind of bearing down here tonight on one of Jason's points this morning about applying or directing people toward the gospel. Forgiveness is not minimizing sin. Often what passes for forgiveness is one person says, I'm sorry, and the other person says, it's okay. But, but if there was sin, it wasn't okay. Forgiveness means you are willing to bear the consequences and suffering from someone else's sin and not make them suffer. You release <clears throat> the one who sinned against you from having to pay for their sin. Now, many times <clears throat> in ordinary life, they're, they're serious, but maybe not too serious things that we have to forgive. But biblical forgiveness also includes the really big, egregious sins. And it also includes the too often repeated sins. And that's costly. That's difficult. And therefore, the opportunity for forgiveness often becomes the occasion for unforgiveness and our unity is broken 
and our witness is compromised. So how do we master <clears throat> the title of this sermon tonight? Forgiving 101. Forgiving 101 means this is basic Christian discipleship. This is not for extra spiritual people. How do we do that when it's so counterintuitive? It's so counter what we feel in the moment. The key, as Jason pointed out this morning, is in verse 13. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Notice, Paul is not saying just forgive because God says so. It's not just forgive because it's the right thing to do. It's not just forgive because if you don't, you won't be forgiven. And it's not just <clears throat> imitate Jesus in his forgiveness. It's as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. In other words, what we are called to do is simply pass on the grace and forgiveness that we have received. Let me give you a word picture. Imagine a mighty flowing river. And as it comes to this drop-off, it becomes a mighty cataract of a waterfall. There's thundering waters flowing into a huge, placid lake. And all around the perimeter of this lake, there are tributaries and sluice gates and streams where that water from the lake flows out into the countryside. Brothers and sisters, you are the lake. The lake is your heart. You are continually, all the time, receiving replenishment from the rivers of living water and the overflowing waterfall of God's forgiveness. Why? So that you can continually channel that grace and forgiveness out into streams into other people's lives by forgiving them. In other words, you can forgive others because you are continually inundated with a never-failing supply of forgiveness for your own sins. And so it's like the old Christian camp song that I used to lead back in the 70s at Camp Geneva. Pass it on. That's what we're being called to do. Now, Jesus fleshes this out wonderfully in a parable in Matthew 18, verses 21 through 35. We don't have time tonight to look it up, but I'm going to walk you through it. If you want to look at it later, again, it's Matthew 18, 21 through 35. The context for this parable is Peter. Peter comes up to Jesus and he says, Lord, <clears throat> how many times do I need to forgive my brother? How many times do I need to forgive my wretched, sing, sin, sinful brother who keeps on sinning against me every day? And then he says, seven times? Now, you know Peter, right? He's probably expecting an encore of, Peter, flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you. This was revealed to you by my Father in heaven. He was probably expecting, you know, good answer, Peter. <clears throat> Peter's probably thinking, seven times. That's probably two more than Jesus would have said. He only would have said five. And, Peter's, and, and Jesus says to Peter, seven times? No, I tell you, 77 times 
in a day. And then Jesus tells a parable in two acts to help us understand it. Act one, a king is settling his accounts with his servants, his stewards. And one such servant is hopelessly in debt. It says he owes the king 10,000 talents. Now figured out in today's monetary system, that would be 10 billion dollars. This is hopeless. The man falls on his knees and he begs for more time. Be patient with me and I will pay you back. The king is moved. It says he has pity, but the word literally means gut-wrenching compassion. His guts are churning with compassion and he and he forgives him of the debt. He releases it. He rips it up and he says, you're free. You don't owe me a thing. Now, why don't you go out and cancel some debts? Act two. The servant goes out, obviously not understanding what just happened. And it says <clears throat> he found a fellow servant. That's interesting. It's a little ambiguous. Did he just run into this guy or did he go out looking for him? This man owes the first servant a hundred denarii. Today that would be $10,000. Now that's not a small debt, <clears throat> but compared to $10 billion, same scenario. The servant falls down, begs, be patient with me. I will pay you back. The first servant not only refuses, it literally says he chokes him and throws him into prison. Which, by the way, that's what happens when we refuse to forgive someone. We choke the life out of them. And we put them in the prison of our wrath. Now, why didn't the first servant get it? Why didn't he pass it on? Why didn't he forgive? Well, forgiveness is complex. <clears throat> but I would suggest that at least one reason is because the servant, the first servant, was thinking only horizontally and forgetting the vertical. We tend to do that. When, when someone sins against us, we, we sort of X God out of it and we just think horizontally. What do I owe compared to what do you owe? And we obsess about the $10,000 of sin or debt that someone has toward us. And we think $10,000, that's a lot. You owe me. And how quickly we forget the $10 billion that we owe God, that God has forgiven. We compare ourselves with others and we always come out on top. We forget how much we have been forgiven. Here's how Paul said it in Colossians 2. He, God, forgave us our trespasses, all our trespasses, having canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. God could have said, you owe me. This he set aside 
nailing it to the cross. Brothers and sisters, do you understand what that means? God didn't just rip it up. He didn't just set it aside. He nailed it to the cross. And when Jesus hung there, shedding his blood, suffering and dying, Jesus Christ, the God-man, paid your $10 billion and mine. We are freed because someone else in love paid our debt. <clears throat> but since we forget the vertical, the amazing grace, instead of going out and canceling other people's debts in union with Christ, sharing in that, we go out debt collecting. You owe me. You owe me. Instead of letting some of the water from the waterfall flow out through the streams and tributaries, we dam up the water until it becomes stagnant and putrid. And tragically, we who have been forgiven and freed by God make prisoners of others. And how can there be fellowship and unity between prisoners and free men? It can't happen. And so our unity is destroyed and our witness is compromised. Oh, brothers and sisters, think hard about how many grievous sins the Lord has forgiven you. We're not talking about breaking some rules. We're not talking about being a little lax in your quiet time or losing your temper every once in a while. We're talking about rank rebellion. We're talking about resisting His grace. We're talking about treason and blasphemy and pride and unbelief, grievous capital crimes against God. And think about how many grievous sins. In my case, it's not months or years. <clears throat> it's decades, decades of sin against God. But He has forgiven us. And you know what? He's done it gladly. He delights to show mercy. He delights to forgive us because it magnifies His Son, His beloved Son, who gave His life for us. He loved you with an everlasting love. And so He delights to show you mercy through the death and resurrection of Jesus. Meditating on the mighty river and the thundering cataract of God's forgiveness will free you and motivate you to forgive others. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Now I'm almost done. Again, forgiveness is complex and it raises legitimate hard questions. And I want to just end with three kind of qualifications to all this. I don't have time to develop them. Any one of these could be a sermon in itself. So just some things to keep in mind that you might want to think about. First of all, forgiveness is often a long and painful process. Yes, it's true that the gospel motivates us and empowers us and frees us to forgive. 
through Christ and the gospel. But that doesn't mean it's easy. It's always costly to bear the consequences of someone else's sin, especially in the really hard cases when there's been abuse or adultery or betrayal. And it often takes time for you to fully experience in your emotions the decision you have made to forgive someone. And that's important because sometimes people feel like, I, I must not have forgiven this person because I still struggle with these emotions. I remember reading a story about C.S. Lewis years and years ago. When C.S. Lewis was a boy, his father sent him to boarding school in England. And the headmaster of this school was a cruel man. Later on, he was literally certified as insane. And he abused C.S. Lewis as a young boy. I don't know if that was just emotional or physically as well. But Lewis hated him. And then when C.S. Lewis became a Christian in his early 30s, he realized forgiveness is at the heart of this faith I've embraced. I must forgive this headmaster. And so he decided, I, I forgive him. And that was great until something would remind him of what happened. And bam, all those emotions of hurt and rage and bitterness would come back. And, and he would have to start all over. I've got to forgive this man. And this went on for years, and he would think he had forgiven him, and then something would happen, and the, and the anger and the rage would come back. <clears throat> and you can imagine, you can start to doubt whether I've forgiven or whether I'm even capable of forgiving. But he kept at it. And then he said one day, he realized, it's over. I've forgiven him. It was done. Forgiveness is often a long and painful process. Second clarification. There is a difference, a significant difference between forgiving someone and trusting them. If someone has betrayed you or abused you or neglected you or done something really serious, by God's grace, you can immediately obey Jesus. What he says in Luke 6, love your enemy. Do good to them, bless them, and pray for them. But you may not be able to trust them, at least not right away. You may still need to put up wise boundaries to protect yourself and to keep from enabling this person in their sin. So there's a difference between forgiving and trusting. And sometimes when that gets confused, people can be guilted into doing things or not having boundaries that are important. And finally, there's also a difference between what we could call the attitude of forgiveness and the actual transaction of forgiveness. The attitude of forgiveness means <clears throat> I can choose to forgive and fight against the bitterness and revenge and hatred anytime. I can do that whenever. But the transaction of forgiveness, which is the requesting and granting and receiving of forgiveness, which actually makes reconciliation, which Jason preached about this morning, possible. That can only happen if the person who has sinned repents and seeks for forgiveness. So three qualifications just to keep in mind. Those are worth thinking about, maybe discussing with others. 
So in summary, I'm going to ask you to do something <clears throat> that you're not going to want to do because it's totally counterintuitive. I'm going to ask you this week, ask God to show you how great your sin is. You might be thinking, why on earth would I do that? If you ask God to show you your $10 billion, but also even more to show you the infinitely greater forgiveness that he has for you, to show you the cross, to show you how Jesus paid for every sin of thought, word, and deed, it will glorify Christ and it will give you joy. Some of the most profound moments of worship in my life have been when I have been most aware of my sin and yet the sweet forgiveness of God through Christ. Meditate on that. Wonder at it. Be amazed and give thanks daily that he has set you free from the prison of his wrath. And then, ask Him for grace, because it will need to be by grace. Ask Him for grace to set other prisoners free from your wrath through forgiving them. Open up the channel and the sluice gates and the tributaries and the streams of that lake of your heart and let the water flow out. Maybe at first it's just a trickle. That's okay. That's a good start. It won't be easy. It wasn't easy for Jesus to suffer and die for our sins. But it will be glorious. And you will have the joy of sharing in the sufferings of Christ, sharing in His comfort, and having the hope of His glory. And what a long way that will go in our church family to help us to be truly united, not in a superficial way, but in a profoundly deep way with the cross at the heart of it and to be united in our witness so that when people come here or when we go out into the community, they see something different. How they love one another. God must have sent Jesus. We're going to pray and I would like to close in prayer with a prayer if I can find it in my Bible a prayer by a man named Henry Watherspoon he was a Scottish minister in the last half of the 19th century and the first part of the 20th century and this is a prayer that it's my new prayer Bible and it comes right at the end of Philemon, which Jason preached on today. And I, I looked at this prayer, and it just seems like it will bring together everything that we've heard today. So I'm going to pray, and then John is going to lead us in the doxology. Let's pray, brothers and sisters. I can pay you nothing of all my debt, O oh God. Forgive me only because I ask you. My sin is great because I owe you infinitely for love that passes understanding. And I nevertheless offend in much and come short in all. Yet there is forgiveness with you.
Help me to deal with others as you deal with me. Help me to forgive from the heart, lest I lose the forgiveness which, with which you have bestowed. Let me never think it is impossible to forgive my brother. Lord, I acknowledge that I find it difficult to forgive. I'm ready to forgive until I'm injured. Then when I am angry and suffer, I do not know how to forgive. Help me to know that then alone is my opportunity to forgive as you, for Christ's sake, have forgiven me. Oh, Lord, do that in our hearts, individually, in families, and as a church. And we give you all the glory through Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.